You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Sometimes I find myself daydreaming about becoming a, a game show host. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be an excellent game show host. See, I think so too. I think so too. It's always my go-to uh, career move if I ever do leave teaching. Either a game show host or working in like a paper company. Uh, but this, by the way, was pre-American office because I'm a UK office originalist. Although the the, the regular office is good too. It's the regular <laughs> office. I feel like the key to being a game show host is to kind of just look at the participants in the game show and look at them like you think they're kind of dumb half the time. Like, why are you making that decision? I don't know. That's what Steve oh, Harvey, I feel like, does. I feel like Steve Harvey just kind of – he didn't actually even have to say anything. He just kind of oh, looks yeah, at no, them. Oh, yeah, no, he does have it pretty much locked down. There's really not a call <laughs> for game shows, but I feel like every so often when I'm teaching, particularly in, like, March – I daydream more and more about becoming a game show host. Why do you do that? Is that because the stresses of teaching, sometimes you, your mind wanders? And- yeah, 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 I do. I, my mind wanders a little bit just because I'm, I feel like I don't, we're often doing the research papers too, which is a lot of work, both on my end and the student's end. And sometimes that can be, you know, managing everyone's process. Plus, I just feel like it is, a heck of a month, and I and I do. I, I think about occasionally. It's more than a daydream. How are the conditions at your school? Do you feel you have the resources and support you need to succeed? That's interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I feel like my uh, my department head's fantastic. He's very supportive, and my school's pretty good about you know saying that if you need to take a a mental health day, do. But I do feel like across the board that. Teachers are getting more and more stress as more and more work seems to be putting upon them or more and more expectations. But obviously, there's only so many hours in a day that we can work or, you know, not sleep. Right, right. And I think Michael Apple talked about the intensification of teaching. And what he meant by that is the ways that, you know, just additional responsibilities get put on teachers, their lunchtime gets reduced, their you know, if they have lunchtime um, or that time gets taken away. And it's just kind of people continually impose. And and that's why I think looking at teaching as a a labor issue is so important because sometimes it's important for us to say, no, like I'm not doing that. I'm, you know, professional and need planning time and I'm not going to do this extra thing. But um, I listened to a podcast by Neil Selwyn recently who talked about these same ideas, but how digital media has really increased intensification for teachers because, man, we're available all the time and some of our students really need us. And so we want to be available because we're in it because we care about them. But it's hard to kind of have balance in your life Yeah, when you're constantly thinking about teaching and there's no turning it off. I remember when I was working in the nonprofit, uh, I worked for an America program and we got Blackberries and it was the coolest thing in the world because we all got Blackberries. And then it was probably you know a couple months into it that we, that we realized, oh my God, we have blackberries. That means we're pretty much on call all the time. It right. was you know, I don't know of any single-edged swords, although apparently there are. But yeah, it was kind of like a double-edged sword. 
And then the two of us, we're probably fairly fortunate in the in the schools we've been in that I know I've never felt like an, the intense pressure that my school is going to fail or that right. money is going to be pulled or that we're even labeled, a, you know, uh, a school by that by like some kind of state standard metric system. Because I could I just feel like that would be very hard when we know the way a lot of testing works that that, you know, you can do your very best, but there's always going to be these challenges in the system that honestly aren't, you know, you can't meet. It's just like No Child Left Behind where what, like by a certain year, everyone was supposed to be proficient. It's just some like ridiculous like, did, goal. Where did we hit we, that year? Yeah, I, I think we did. I oh, think it came in Everyone is, well, what are the, what's the outcome for No Child Left Behind? I don't think it's critical thinking. So, <laughs> but I think it's important for teachers as a whole to really talk about these issues and investigate them together and understand each other's situation. And so today we're going to talk to one of our favorite guests we've had. We've, we've been debating what's after a friend of the pod, because I think this is the third time that we've had him on. And so we'd like to welcome into the podcast, Nate Bowling. Welcome. Thank you. Hey, Nate. Good to, good to hear you both. Nate, we first had you on because you were the 2016 Washington State Teacher of the Year, Woo-hoo. and my mother saw you in a video, and so she said you looked like you had a lot of impressive things to say, and it was one of my favorite episodes. We talked about equity in education, and so we've been glad to have you back. Um, so how are things going in your teaching career? You know, things are interesting right now. I'm reaching the end of my 13th year. It's my 10th year at the same high school, Lincoln High School, where I've been. My administration has blessed me that I haven't had a lot of changes in preps. So I'm teaching this year AP government politics and AP human geography. And uh, my students took their AP gov exam at the beginning of this week and AP human geos next week. Uh, but at the end of this year, I'll be departing the school. And my wife and I are actually headed abroad to teach. Can wow. you tell us a little bit, little bit more? How did, you, how did your school work labor situation compared to what we said? What, what is your school situation like do you feel like you're supported what pressures do you have how is your time respected yeah it's it's interesting listening to you all talk about your situations i spent the first three years of my career at the most affluent middle school in my district it's in a pretty suburban in a town and only like 15 percent of our students were were low income for just lunch and then i came across town to my current school and it's the opposite end of the spectrum and so i actually feel like i work in a best case scenario for like urban schooling I feel like I have a supportive and awesome administrator who's been there for a long time. This is his 15th year. I feel like we have some really equitable programs going on. We do a, basically an AP for all, well, AP for most academic acceleration model. We have an extended school day. We have a community resource officer who's in our building for student support services. And, and it's funny because about 10 years ago, our school was one of those ones that was like named on the front page of local newspapers as a dropout factory. And we've turned that around, but I'm also feeling like burnout is not far off. And I, I kind of just realized that if I want to stay in the classroom, I don't want to be a principal. I don't want to go into policymaking. Like if I wanted to stay in the classroom, I would have to do something different. What is it? So teacher burnout is a thing. I mean, everyone talks about it, right? And I know I've had I've had moments where I just am like, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming because it is so constant, right? I mean, I feel like the grading, for example, it, it's like it doesn't end. It just comes in waves at you. And I always feel like there's more. That's one of the things that's always stressed me. What is it for you that, that you feel like is, has got you closer to feeling burnt out potentially and 
fortunately in this case you're recognizing and trying to be proactive and make changes yeah it's here's the thing is like i feel like people think that i think that there's this impression that i'm upset about like my school that i work at like i work at a really dope school with a really dope staff but like the work is all consuming I work at a school population with students who just have a lot of need and we have some metrics in place to support them. But like my students have just so much unmet need in their life that oftentimes school isn't their focus. And so if I think about like the actual art of standing and delivering instruction and like communicating with students and provoking students to think and collaborate, like I can still do that. Like I I love that part of the work. It's just everything else. It's the additional obligations. It's the just the, the, just the workload. The job of teaching and learning in a low-income school is just fundamentally different than teaching and learning anywhere else. And I don't think as a society, we've really wrapped our heads around that. Like, you can take somebody who is a proficient teacher at a suburban middle school and, if, and move them into a low-income school, and it requires a completely different skill set. Conversely, though, what I've found is, is that if you can teach in a low-income school and thrive, you can teach anywhere. But it's just hard, hard grinding work. What types of, well, what makes the work different, in your opinion, and what types of supports do we need in a low-income school? I know that I, as I've thought about this issue a lot, I've always thought that teachers in low-income schools should be paid higher than teachers in suburban schools um, because of the very things you're listing, that oftentimes they are helping with things that go beyond the teaching of content, the preparing for the AP test. So what do you think is different and what do you think we could do? Well, so many of my students, through no fault of their own, like my friend Tom Rademacher, he's an amazing teacher, has a, a saying that I love and it's like many things are wrong with public education, but none of them are the students. So many of my students are dealing with like life circumstances that impact their mental health and impact their emotional stability and impact like their physical well-being. And like that contributes to absenteeism, that contributes to students being housing unstable, that contributes to students not having uh, resources, that contributes to students not feeling a sense of safety and security. And it's funny, like everybody who's a teacher probably took a social 101 class at some point in their freshman or sophomore year where they learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And there are so many students who are walking the hallways of low-income schools whose life needs just basically aren't met. And if your life needs aren't met, and I'm standing in front of you trying to get you to understand the doctrine of selective incorporation and why the Bill of Rights being applied to the states through the due process clause is important, like it's, it's hard to get students to focus on like that. And so what ends up happening is, is that I have to do more, more sales than actual teaching. And like, it's fine. Like I, I can sell, like I, I, I'm a, I'm a compelling communicator. Like I can convince people that like what I'm saying is important, but the job of teaching in, in, in a school like Lincoln high school and in schools all over the country is just a different job. Like I'm trying to think about an example. Oh, here's an example. At my at my prior school I worked at, Meeker Middle School, we had a really robust PTA. And so for me, there was a book that I wanted to get a classroom set of. Uh, and I went to the PTA basically. And actually, I didn't go to the PTA. A parent approached me and was like, hey. And basically like within 24 hours, book, you know, book wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Low-income schools don't have active PTAs. So they don't have that additional support. Low-income schools oftentimes are going to lack resources. We're going to have a larger portion of our faculty who are early in their career. One of the things that like, I think our country needs to really think about is, is we've put a lot of pressure, and rightfully so, on 
improving the outcomes at low-income schools. But what we haven't done is we haven't thought about how to make that work sustainable. I saw a stat from the Atlantic Magazine that really resonated with me. And basically the stat goes that like in 1988, the median years of experience for a teacher in America was 15 years. Do you know what the number is now? Seven? Five. Oh my. So the median years of experience in an average American school is five. The median years of experience in a low-income school is lower than the average because turnover is higher at these schools. And so there's something within the teaching profession in the United States at low-income schools where we're not making the work sustainable. And I'm making a decision right now that I need to walk away from this work and, and this building and not because I don't love these kids and love this building, but because I want to stay effective and I want to hold myself to a high standard. And I can't see myself staying at the level I expect for myself in the conditions that I still have. And like one thing I'll add is it's not about money. Like Tacoma uh, schools had a strike this fall. When I go to conferences and talk to folks about like salary numbers from Florida and Texas and other states, like I, I, I talk real quiet. Like, guys, I'm, I'm going to make over $90,000 this year. Like this isn't about the money. This is about, it's about quality of life and restoring like work-life balance to my life. I, I think so many teachers working in low-income schools and high-need schools, they're doing so much emotional labor and their work-life balance is so skewed that like they're not actually as effective as they could and should be. So we've talked about your school for, uh, you know, a number of times, the times you've been on, you really do love it. How, can, that decision to take a break to, to leave it must have been just, I mean, that's a pretty major decision. Do you mind walking us through a little bit about like what brought you to that point? Yeah. So I, I do love Lincoln High School and I've been there for a decade. And so there's families like the Evans family and the Jumpy family and the De La Cruz family and the Tran family where like I've taught three and four uh, members of the family. Like when they see me in public, we stop and talk like I'm an uncle. I've been to their homes. Like I see them at sporting events. Like I've, I've intentionally immersed myself in this community and I, and I love this community. And my wife and I are keeping our house and plan to return in theory back to this community. That said, my, I, I'm a traveler and every year my wife and I, we basically have gone abroad and we, we do, you know, budget travel. Uh, last year we were in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and I was standing in KL and I was like, I would like to live here. There's beyond what's happening in my classroom uh, as just a, a black male in America. Like I have concerns about the political dynamics that are present in the United States. I have concerns about like the rising tide of white supremacy and the complicity of frankly, the leader of our country in that. I have concerns about like neo-Nazi activity here in the Northwest and liberal indifference towards that. And so if you have a job that you love but is exhausting you and you have a political dynamic that you find unsatisfactory, then like I'm, I'm childless and I, and I have an opportunity to move and we're choosing to move. And what I think about a lot when I travel is, uh, there's a quote from James Baldwin my dad told me when I was really young. And he said that like, so as a black man in particular, that travel helps cure you about the lies that America tells you about yourself and about itself. And over the last couple of years, like in the summer of 2017, I was in Mexico watching Charlottesville unfold. And I was like, y'all, that's kind of crazy. And last summer I was in Cambodia when there was basically a, a neo-Nazi demonstration here in the Northwest that I watched happen. Like that's a lot. That's a lot. And so like, I love the work that I do and I love the building that I work at, 
but I just feel for me and for like the reasons I've enumerated and some other reasons we'll get into that, like it was just time for a change. And the opportunity that I have is really dope. Like I'm going to go to an international school in Abu Dhabi and I'm going to teach the exact same things I'm teaching in, here in Tacoma. I'm going to teach AP government politics and then a freshman global issues class, uh, but to a whole different population, to a, a group of students who are from 60 different nations. And uh, like that, that speaks to me. It's a really cool opportunity. Your story reminds me of uh, Paul Robeson, who I remember he traveled to the Soviet Union and started to identify with communism during the Cold War. And, you know, when we don't teach history in like complicated ways, people don't understand that. But largely what he said is like that he was looking for equality and he was not finding that in the United States. So he looked elsewhere and he looked for other systems. And so and in that case is the Soviet Union. But you see many people, black people historically, who've left the United States. I mean, W.B. Du Bois as an example, too. And so one question I have, we had Destiny Warrior on in episode 16, and she talked about mentoring for retention. Um, is there anything your school could have done? I mean, are there any other things? I mean, it seems like they did everything right, but it's still just, you know, there's still that need to, to have new adventures, try new things, and also just to refresh with something different. Is there anything else they could have done to support you? Well, and, and I want to be really clear here. Tacoma Schools has been incredibly supportive of me uh, over the last few years. Like despite the, the labor stoppage and the strike issues we had, I, I've never felt like my school district was not supportive of me. And the same for my administration. I will say that here in Washington state, we have a uniquely ridiculous funding situation where essentially the city of Tacoma and Tacoma School District was told that there was a cap on how much that we could raise in levy funding. And so there's a bunch of programs that are funded from local dollars that are funded from state dollars. And so like we in the United States, the recession ended in 2009. Uh, there are districts here in Washington state that are facing layoffs. And like, that's insane because Washington state actually has like the most dynamic economy in, in the country right now. Like I, I teach in the state that is the home of Bill Gates, that is the home of Jeff Bezos, that's the home of Microsoft, Amazon, Starbucks, Boeing was founded here, UPS was founded here, Costco was founded here. But because we have a very regressive tax policy and no income tax, we actually have a, a, a crippled state budget a lot of times. Like our state budget, and this is super wonky for Washington state, and it's out if you want to, uh, our state budget is basically driven by property taxes and sales taxes, and that's incredibly regressive. And so from in many cases, the funding isn't there. Like all that said, though, we, we have to have real conversations about altering the workday for teachers and altering like what the work looks like for teachers at low income schools, because like the job is just different. And so one thing that I've been blessed to have is you mentioned mentoring. I've been a mentor teacher the last couple of years. And this school year, I'm working with a partner teacher who was my student teacher last year and her and I have the same preps. And so like we have intentional planning periods together and we sit down and plan and collaborate. But that's something that we sought out and requested from administration was granted to us. I, one of the biggest things I'm excited about for my new school opportunity is, is that we're going to be on an eight period block day and I'm going to have multiple planning periods. And one of those planning periods is set aside specifically for collaboration. I, I, I really think wow. that there's a yawning gap, the yawning gap on collaboration and community building for teachers and that teaching is very isolating and happens behind closed doors, metaphorically open doors, perhaps, but like, 
I, I think that any school system should really be thinking about like how much they're encouraging and how they're intentionally building collaborative relationships between educators because collaboration can build sustainability. And also like when I leave the school, it's not like there's going to be a, now what do we do? There's somebody who's worked with me for a full year and has all my curriculum, all my assessments, um, and who I've worked with for a year to kind of build up for this position. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost like a freelance worker because I just, I kind of do my thing. I go yeah. in some days. I don't talk to anyone else besides my students. Some weeks, particularly during March, I don't talk to anyone else besides my students and my wife because yeah, the, the work is so heavy and there's just not that, that time built in for it. And our guests. Oh, right, right. Course. So I do make time for, for our guests. <laughs> yeah. But no, sometimes well, I, it's very lonely. I feel well, so here's the point sometimes. really fast. Just, just, just think about this. When I went into teaching, and I think when you all went into teaching, there were folks who were, when we were getting started, retiring from the profession. Do you see yourselves retiring from the profession? Do you see yourselves in the classroom for that 27, 30, whatever years it takes in your state to, be, to retire? I don't know. That's, I don't know. I That's would... wild though. Like you, so you love teaching enough that you host a podcast about <laughs> right? And you're like, I don't know. Like that's that to me is an indictment of the system that we have. If folks like you and myself are like, I don't know if I can do this. Like that's an indictment of the system of education that we have here in the United States right now. Like the the role of teacher has been, we've essentially said, here's new job responsibility. Here's new job responsibility. Here's new job responsibility. Here's testing right. coordination. Here's some light social work. Here's college advising, but here's no additional time. And I think that's, so that since the move to higher ed, like I miss teaching all the time. I love teaching high school and I all the time want to go back in. But the the biggest difference is how intellectually respected you are at the college level. You know what I mean? You're included in decisions on everything. Like we we make all the decisions in ways that, that you're not included oftentimes or respected in schools. And then you have a lot of time to figure things out. Now we're overworked in many of our ways, although we do it to ourselves oftentimes by taking on too many projects and things like that. But I think that's the biggest thing that would have ha been necessary to keep me in the classroom is is that I had I would have wanted more time, like you're saying, Nate, to work with my colleagues, to collaborate with my colleagues, but then also to be more part of the decision making structure of school. I think that's one of the things that teachers should be making the decisions about their schools. I think that I think that some decisions are, are very big, and I feel like there's so many different opinions going into things. Like we're changing our schedule, and it's such a, a long process. There's many different committees looking at it, and now as a staff, we're kind of looking at it. And right now, it seems like people are just like, "All right, let's just do it. Let's get it over with." Right. It's making group decisions with a hundred people to ensure that everyone feels like they have a voice is very difficult. It's, it's oh, different. yeah. Oh, and I wouldn't, that can be worse, right, uh, than, than even being included in decision-making. I mean, I th what I mean by that is that, that teachers have power in real ways and are included, not that everyone's on every committee, because too many cooks in the kitchen is a real problem. <laughs> well, so schools. can I add something really fast here? Yeah. So my organization, Teachers United, has done actually research on hybrid roles. And I think that one of the things that we should really think about for about teaching is about how we distribute leadership. I have a colleague named Kevin Zamira who came into teaching three years ago from industry. And he's always gobsmacked about how flat the organizational chart is in a school. 
essentially you have like a principal, a vice principal and teachers. And there's no like opportunities for folks to like progress. There's no middle management. They're essentially like, if you want to be a leader, you have to leave the classroom. And then what we have is we have these school district, these administration positions that are downtown. And I think within the profession, most folks inside schools don't have a lot of faith in administration downtown. And if we're being honest, a lot of folks in administration downtown don't have faith in folks who are in classrooms. And I think one of the things that we should really be thinking about in teaching is creating more hybrid roles. Many states do a lot better job with this than others, but the job of a teacher should not be the exact same year one that is year 13 or year 18 or year 30. If we're going to have a 22-year-old who's fresh out of undergrad teaching five periods, then when that person's been in the career for 25 years, they shouldn't be doing those same five periods. They should be doing, you know, I'm going to teach two periods of this and then coach a period. I'm going to teach three periods of this and collaborate. I'm going to teach two periods of this and be a part-time librarian or a part-time this or a part-time dean of students. Like w- there's opportunities and, and, and need to give teachers opportunities to lead in the profession. Because here's the thing, right? Like the skill set that we have translates to other places. I've had friends who have left, left the profession and they've gone from being English teachers to technical writers. They've gone from being English teachers to corporate trainers. They've gone from being teachers in social studies to working in sales for like major corporations. Like our skill set translates, but we don't give teachers opportunities to lead. And when they don't have opportunities to lead, they don't grow. I absolutely think that makes sense. And yeah, I just wish um, not only are there those teacher leader roles that you can take on these hybrid roles or you could shift or have options. But also, I just think about um, the increased freedom within the role too, can make such a big difference. Again, that intellectual side of it, um, which is about respect. So it's one of it, so that fits on your stool still, and if we're ke- keeping the stool metaphor going. And I just think about like how big a part of my job it is to, to design curriculum and rethink it. And, you know, when I was teaching AP U.S. government and politics, you know, you, you get so into the curriculum. And for me, it's interesting because I was a social studies person, right? But when I step back and I'm back out of it, and then I get to design the curriculum, I realized, you know, pretty quickly, like what you were saying earlier, selective incorporation is just not that important to a high school kid. And Don't tell that. Don't tell them that. I know. It's right at the wrong time of the year. It's super important, kids. Everyone study for your AP test. And I don't know. I just, I just wish that teachers had more opportunities to also rethink because that can be really revitalizing is just rethinking what a course looks like and, and having some say over the curriculum and giving up on the idea we can't cover everything, right? For years, I've said, even if we wanted to have the AP test, why couldn't we have like variable tests? Like couldn't the AP, it's a huge organization with tons of money, couldn't they produce like a variety of different possible tests and students, for example, could with their teachers could choose topics that most interested them or they wanted to investigate. Now, I'd just rather would get rid of it all and have no standards and let teachers and students figure out what they wanted to learn. But there's other compromises, too, that would allow more intellectual freedom for teachers and also for even students, too, to really have more say in what schools look like. I think it's really... So I I had an experience in 2014 and 15. I went and taught in Chengdu, Sichuan, China during the summer. And I taught middle-class Chinese students who basically wanted to go to the U.S. for university. And I was offering an an evening opportunity for like this is American college and cultural knowledge you need. And what happened when I was hired was, was that essentially they brought me over, trusted me to be the expert, gave me a reasonable number of students, and then a American, sorry, a Chinese student who was on break from college in America to be my TA and left me alone. And I think one of the things that we do to teachers is we manage their work. 
And so does a first year teacher need to have a lot of handholding? Yeah, probably so. Frankly, more than they get. But when you go to somebody who's been teaching for seven years, eight years, and has evaluations where they've been ruled proficient time after time, and then say to them, hey, here's this prepackaged curriculum that we just purchased. You have to be on this lesson uh, on this day with this success criteria and this learning target. And we de-skill the work. We're begging good, thoughtful people to leave. That sounds terrible. That sounds awful. I, if I was handed a scripted curriculum, I probably would walk out right away. I just, I don't know how you do it. It's so humiliating. Like you go to college or you go get a degree and get certification by all these requirements, oftentimes without the, the pay that should accompany it. And then if someone takes away the only dignity you have left as an intellectual professional, that's just like the lowest of the low. If your district is doing scripted curriculum, it's time for a revolution. I'm telling you, man, like there's a shocking number. And so that's not my experience at my school. Like I, I teach an AP class. I have, I have the freedom to do that however I want to. But there's a shocking number of school districts across the country, particularly in the lower grades that are de-skilling the profession and shifting to a scripted curriculum. And here's the thing. We want thoughtful people to go into teaching, but thoughtful people aren't going to stay in work where they don't get to be thoughtful. And like that sounds simple, but it's also just it's, it's obvious to me. Yeah. And it also makes me wonder too, and maybe administrators often their hands are tied and they can't make any changes, but administrators have to also have an advanced degree and should have been teachers themselves. And so to me, I don't understand why any administrator would ever enforce that and wouldn't fight for their teachers. Because even if you have a teacher you don't trust, you have to think of what kind of system you're creating and culture you're creating in your school when you're forcing people to do a scripted curriculum. I mean, it sets such a bad tone for the for the profession and everyone around them. Do you like is everyone on book when you do a scripted yeah, curriculum? Yeah, when you're on a script like is everyone or do you memorize your lines? <laughs> like are you going to be I mean, off book or are you just going to be on book? Like I, I mean, uh, there's, there's... <laughs> Sorry. That was just funny. Nate, can you tell us a little bit? You've taught abroad several times, right? So you've taught in China, you're going to Abu Dhabi now. I mean, what what's it like teaching overseas? How do teachers go about come about these opportunities? And what do you think this is going to do for you? Well, so there's two things, honestly. The teaching profession is held in very high regard in other cultures, and it's not viewed and held in high regard here in the United States. We're recording this conversation during Teacher Appreciation Week, and like, there's some really nice Facebook posts happening. But like, I don't know about you all, but I see a lot of frustration among teachers here in the United States right now. Yeah. That said, the opportunity to teach abroad is going to be really fascinating to me. I'm going to go into a culture that is not a culture I'm familiar with, and I'm going to teach students from over 60 countries, and I'm going to be teaching about American government. And the opportunity to go abroad and teach abroad for me is like a, a, a perspective shifting opportunity. It's one thing to teach about what America is and America is supposed to be to students who are born and raised here, but teaching it to people who consume and understand America from abroad is gonna be a fascinating opportunity that I look, I look forward to. The other thing that I would say is, is that I'm just really excited for the cultural experience and cultural change. I'm gonna have students from like all over the world and it's gonna be just a mishmash of, of languages and perspectives and points of origin. And I, I, I'm here for it. Like I, 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 okay, this is gonna sound weird, but just stick with me really fast. I really believe in the idea of like a pluralistic society and like that the United States is better off as a quilt that is multicultural in which cultures are valued and distinct and like have their own traditions and that we're united by our ideas. 
like that's what I'm going into. I'm going into a place where my students are come from all over the world. And a lot of the kids are going to want to go to college in the United States. A lot are going to go to college in the UK. And it's just my job to prepare them for either one, either option. Michael, it's your line in the scripted curriculum. <laughs> Wait, so how did you get the job? Uh, so there's a website called Search Associates. And I have some friends who went and taught in Beirut about four years ago. And that's the website that they used. And so they gave me that information and I created an account. And it was actually really cool. Like when we were in the job market, basically every day my wife and I got a email that listed the schools that we each individually matched. And so then we sat down and we were like, did you match for Shanghai? No. Did you match for a Casablanca? Yes. No. Ooh. And we went through and, and each day we were getting, you know, four and five jobs that were good for both of us. And then we started interviewing with schools that have positions for both of us. And now you're going to the international school in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And now we're headed abroad. Very cool. Good for you. What are you, do you plan on, uh, is this more of like a sabbatical where you're doing this for a few years and then, cause I know that you're keeping your home in, in Tacoma. So I, I'm, I'm being very transparent with this. I've signed a two year contract. If I like it, I'll stay. Yeah. If, uh, Trump gets reelected, frankly, I'll stay. <laughs> and yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to see it one, one to your block at a time. Well, keep us well, posted. For multiple reasons, I hope that you're back in two years, but yeah, Nay, I mean, we, it's, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat, but also uh, I know how much you put into your school. And so this is teacher appreciation week when we're recording this. So let me just say, thank you for being such a dedicated teacher in the United States. And I know you will continue that tradition in Abu Dhabi, but but congratulations on all your work you've done in your first 13 years and especially your last 10 years at Lincoln. Thank you. Thank you for being a teacher. <laughs> Michael, I was going to do too. that like um, the thank you for being a friend, but I couldn't think of any of the other words because you're I, every year and then you go, then you start over again. You're a friend and a confidant. <laughs> you are a friend and a confidant. <laughs> I only kind of know what Michael's saying, but Michael, thank you for being a teacher too. <laughs> Nate, well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to plug before you go out? Sure. First off, I want to say thanks for having me on. I'm a, I'm a fan, a frequent guest and a listener to the show. I have my own podcast called the Nerd Farmer Podcast. If you want to hear more of my yammering, you can find that on Twitter at NerdFarmPod. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Nate underscore bowling. And you'll keep your podcast up when you're gone. It is my intention to maintain the podcast. Nice. Excellent. And maybe if you want to, we could get in an update from the education situation in Abu Dhabi after you've been there for a little bit. And you could tell us about your experiences teaching abroad. I'd be game for that for sure. Excellent. So again, thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. And we hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. At the Vision of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, and really, just chat us up, we're on Twitter, at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, and in that one place where I signed us up for, but I totally forgot. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Vision of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you want us to be. Those are really just the four places, and we had we made a good little infographic. We've been our good little visual we've been putting up on Twitter to show you those places. So share it with a friend, and if you write us a five star review, we will read it on the air. And not only will we read it on the air, I'll put it on my fridge, which is new, because we moved. 
We honestly, I don't think we've gotten a five star review in a while. I don't know, maybe Apple's blocking it, but Michael <laughs> and I have been have been have been crying quite a bit. So get on there, write your script. Your script. We can write the script face. for you. We can write the script for you, teachers, if you want to, oh, for God. the five star review. Thank you. And, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. and I'm at Forty Two Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.